0: You're listening to iFanboy's Talksplode with Christopher Cantwell. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan with ifanboy.com. Thanks to the patrons for unlocking these interview shows the talk explodes uh, which was done quite some time ago but it gives us a chance to talk to some really great creators about the comics they're making and some other stuff if they if they make other stuff. And today our guest is Christopher Cantwell who definitely makes other stuff as the co-creator and showrunner. Of uh, the, the series Halt and Catch Fire, which was on AMC and is a big favorite of mine. He also moved over to comics where he did several books with uh, Dark Horse, uh, She Could Fly, Everything, and, and The Mask, and now he's working at Marvel, uh, Doctor Doom, and Iron Man, among those things, and uh, it's uh, a real pleasure to speak with him. This is Josh Flanagan with iFanboys Talk Explode, and I'm here today with uh, Christopher Cantwell. Hello. Hi. A lot of times I will describe what somebody is, but I will say, oh, as a comic book writer, but you have many uh, uh, hats, I suppose, that you wear. So, uh, storyteller works, I guess, if we want to keep it short.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, um, I don't know. I think I, I entered that sphere as a TV showrunner for a, a show called Halt and Catch Fire that was on AMC for four seasons. I ran that with my my partner in crime and my my brother in blood, uh, Christopher Rogers, also goes by Chris. Uh, we're affectionately referred to as the Chrises in the Hollywood industry, which makes us wretch. <laughs> uh, and then, um, yeah, I direct, I direct, got to direct my first film a couple years ago called the parts you lose starring Aaron Paul shot it up in Winnipeg um, in the dead of winter. Um, the main, the main character was a, a young deaf boy. Um, and, and it was a little thriller um, that I, I'm very proud of and just photographed really nicely. And then, and then, um, I transitioned into comic books, I think, in 20—oh, 20... gosh, I still remember the day. It was the day of the, the March for Science in Toronto, and I was, I was speaking at the Toronto screenwriting conference with Chris, um, which we've done a couple times, and it, it's really fun. And, and then afterwards, I didn't have much to do, so I, I joined the March for Science— I was just hanging out and then like I kind of had this idea for a comic book and I reached out to Willow Wilson who was following me on Twitter at the time because she she dug halt and catch fire and obviously I, I dug what she was doing so I just said hey how do you do this and then she she introduced me to you know Karen Berger who is basically like indie comics God and then things went from there yeah I pitched Karen and we got our first book going. We had a great time. Started doing our second book. I started meeting other folks, and here we are. I'm writing writing comic books, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me, career wise. No, I'm
0: serious. Well, you, well you, it's funny because you actually just you just did a lot of my work for me right away. Because the first <laughs> thing I was I was going to say is, you know, how does one go from you know you're running a show, you know, you, you make a movie, and I'm not saying comics is a downward step, but it is, a, it is a different type of thing. And it's very normal to see people come in and say, oh, I love comics. I want to I you know, do some projects. But you're doing several ongoing series at this point. Um, and yeah. that's interesting.
1: It is. I'm very lucky. I, people always ask me, they're like, you know, what would you prefer? Would, you know, TV or film? Or comic books, and I, I'd say, like, my diplomatic answer is, well, they're both they're both very different mediums, and uh, you know, each has its drawbacks and its advantages in terms of what you could do. But the real answer is comic books. <laughs> really, a hundred percent. I I love it. Uh, you know, look, there's always a lot of money at stake with TV and movies, and and rightfully so. They you're you're trying to create, you're trying to recreate natural life which it feels it it feels like it's against god you know if there is one where it's like we're gonna recreate his naturalistic moments or her naturalistic moments you know so it requires like cables and lights and just the right sun and all this kind of stuff and it it really does feel like it is against the creator's purpose to try to recreate that (laughs) i think that comics it's a medium of, of, of interpretation, which is what's so beautiful about it. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, my first series with Karen was something highly personal called she could fly. And it was based somewhat on my experiences of dealing with a very specific type of OCD called, um, pure O or, or primarily obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's something that lives almost 99% in your head. And so, therefore, it's very easy to hide. And it was something I'd been dealing with since I was about 10 years old, and I'd have these severe episodes and just kind of fight through them. And it brings, it brings a lot of shame with it in terms of what's going on with your brain, because you're imagining all of this really messed up stuff and, and, and stuff you don't want to do. So it was the last thing I wanted to do was bring it up to my parents, because I thought they'd put me away, you know, and, and I that 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 leads to its own panic. And... It wasn't until I was 35 and had finished the third season of *Halt and Catch Fire* that I finally, I, I just had this kind of breakdown and and came clean to my wife and then to my mental health care professionals and, you know, that was a very healthy experience. And so Karen gravitating towards these personal stories and these unique ways into stories really responded to what I wanted to do. And obviously, there's more sci-fi components that she could fly than then obviously then what happened to me, I never saw anybody flying through the sky, although that would have been awesome. Um, you know, we went out with that. And and then all of a sudden I went from something that I had kept secret for 35 years to, you know, it having an ISBN number. <laughs> and, uh, and and then people, people would come up to me at conventions or write me and people still do. And they say, man, I, I have the same thing and I've never seen anything about this and 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 thank you and and that to me was like that was the that was the the top for me and 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 then everything else has been you know just fun like i i always had weird stories in my head halt and catch fire is not necessarily a weird story Mm -hmm. it's a story rooted in some personal connection my dad was in computers in the 80s something I'm fascinated by, I get endlessly fascinated by things, obviously that's an OCD thing too, I'll go all the way down into details, but pairing with Chris Rogers was really the counterbalance to that, and we wrote the pilot for Halt and Catch Fire, and it was really just a staff on TV, we were just marketing bums working at Disney together, and um, as good fortune would have it, we ended up with a show, so I mean, you know, when I when I called, I mean, this is this sounds lame, but not, not lame sorry I hate that word but uh, you know silly that um when I called Karen or, or Willow said this guy wants to talk to you I'm not just some schmo you know hanging out like I had a, a show on the air so I think I, I I had some storytelling chops so Karen took that a little bit more seriously but then I you know I had to prove myself to Karen and 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 then I had to prove myself to Mike Richardson. And then, you know, as I met people, I had to prove myself to Tom Brevoort and Will Moss. And, um, you know, you're always auditioning at a certain point. Um, But but it's going well so far.
0: So when, uh, you know, you had this issue that you're coming to terms with, you know, what process does that, like, turn into a a story idea that you then, you know, saw this, this works as a comic book? Like, what is it about that? that you thought, well, that's the right medium for this thing. Especially having, I assume, never written a comic book.
1: No. And that that was one place where film and TV had helped me. I, I was one of those weirdos who went to film school at SC but majored in screenwriting, which was a crazy thing. And, you know, there's only 25 of us that year. This was in 2000. And I graduated in 2004. Um, but there's a couple parts of that, you know, where... I had an idea that had been floating around in my head for 20 years, about. Well, that made me like 17 years at that point. I'd written it down when I was a sophomore. And the original idea was that, <laughs> you know, those rotating fans, you know, those kind of old school rotating fans mm-hmm. put on your desk. My idea was that somebody figured out a way to, a woman figured out a way to jack one of those into her brain and control it and fly around. And so she became the flying woman. And I talked to Erin, uh, uh, Karen, about this a little bit, and she said, "You know, superhero stuff aside, like, what is your personal connection to this?" And I had just gone through a really, really severe episode of of this stuff, and I, you know, it was. It led to me getting a full psychiatrist. It led to me having more in depth conversations with my therapist. It led to me sitting down with my parents for the first time in 35 years and explaining to them what had actually been going on with me. Um, and and it was happening at the same time. And I, in my head, I said, well, God damn it. Like, I'm just going to go radical with this. And and I'll take that story. But I'll put it in the perspective of a 15-year-old girl who's going through the exact same shit I was going through. Sorry, I hope I can swear on your podcast. You're case. fine, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Fuck! Okay, um, just got that out of my
0: system. You always have to get that um, out.
1: yeah. The, the, and what's cool about comic books with that story is that, and this is what I, I, I was attracted to with comic books when I was a kid because I, I read them in grade school and middle school and it really helped me with what I was going through because I could lose myself in it. I could lose myself in the endless detail of the world building and the characters and their powers and traits and origin stories and, you know, you can go forever. And, um, I could, I could linger on panels in comic books. And I still remember panels that were beautiful. And I still remember panels that were disturbing, where you couldn't stop staring at it. I remember the first time that I really saw Wolverine use his claws to, like, punch through somebody. And it was Shatterstar, <laughs> if you remember that character. I- and it was from the Executioner Song saga. And he... They're fighting. I forgot why, but like it's like I think X-Factor's there to stop them and the X-Men are like, you know, F you <laughs> and they get in a fight and Wolverine like just hauls off and punches Shatterstar in the chest and it's incredibly drawn where it's Shatterstar's white coat, but you can see the three prongs sticking not out of the fabric, but against the fabric, and you know that it's gone through his body. And I, I just remember that sticking with me and going, Holy shit and and you can sit there and it's indelible in a way. It's on a piece of paper so you can stare at it and stare at it and stare at it. The same thing as, you know, with when I read the original mask graphic novels by by, you know, um, you know, Doug Mankey and John Arcudi and, and and Mike, um, there's certain images in there where you just stare at them, or there's certain images where, you know, like like Norman Osborn, um, um, or sorry, Harry Osborn dying in dying in bed and spectacular 200, you know, where you just, you can, you can sit on them as long as you want. They're these tableaus. And so that's exactly what it feels like in my brain. And, and with this stuff, it just, it happens over and over and over again. And it's very detailed. And, and so with a comic book, you can have an artist like Martin Morazzo come in and, and draw that thing that scares the shit out of you and there it is and you can stare at it as long as you need to until it kind of extinguishes from your brain and then you can move on <laughs> if that makes sense so
0: yes um so when you're you're sort of translating these ideas if you like was there a challenge for you to sort of adapt to writing that a story for for a comic book i know there's there's different things that happen where you know for example in a screenplay, you can say, you know, he goes from here to there. You know, in a comic book, everything has to be an action that you're showing at the time. Like, what was the sort of learning curve to sort of switch formats? And I say this, you know, I've written spec scripts. I've done sorts of things. Comic book writing it tends to be some of the hardest writing that I've tried to do because the, you know, the format's a little different. And there's also, there isn't a format a lot of times. And how you talk to the artist is, it depends on who it is and how you're thinking of it. Like, how did that, how did you work with that stuff?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I, I Karen sent me some samples. And I think it was Bendis.
0: Also, but having that, your first editor be Karen Berger is uh, right. It's, I mean, it's both terrifying insane. and really helpful.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I God, I got to get this right. But you know, she sent me some Bendis samples, and I was like, okay, uh, yeah, because I does. get this. Yeah, and you know, like there style. was no there was no macro. Um, I didn't write them in final draft. I still don't, and I've kind of developed my own format where you know, there's the page heading in bold. And again, I'm very particular about details where it's page one, parentheses, how many panels, colon, you know, that's underlined. And then you go down to underline panel one, period. Mm -hmm. And you go, and the dialogue is numbered. Um, You know, small font, little font, electric tail, second balloon from this character, that kind of stuff. I've, I've learned to do that. I think in terms of the storytelling medium, you know, I've learned I've learned the importance of page turns Yeah. or the importance of like it's different if you go from like, you know, it's different if you go from page two, which is going to be on your left side because one is opened up and you've got your ads or whatever on the or whatever or copy for your own book mm-hmm. on the inside cover. And then there's one and then, you know, the flip from one to two is big. And then you've got, um, but you've got two, but like a movement from two to three isn't in my opinion, as big a deal because the, you know, peripheral vision is catching what's going on on three. So if you really want to surprise somebody, it's got to be that three flip, right? It's got to be the the flip from three to four Mm -hmm. where you go, Oh fuck. Right. Like (laughs) that's like, that's emotionally or, or, you know, um, um, with spectacle that that's been very important. And then highlighting those big tableaus where it's like, Oh, we're going to do three panels here, or we're going to do a splash. We're going to do a double spread. Um, you know, the key moments where it requires that kind of geometry or that kind of staging. And I think some of my directing ability has helped with that. But I think also what's amazing about some of the best comic artists I've worked with, like Martin Morasso or, you know, Kafu, is they're better directors than I'll ever be. Mm-hmm. Like like Martin, Martin will read my description and then he'll throw the camera in an amazing place. And, I, I'm, you know, I colloquially say camera, that, but it's yeah, like
0: – I know. I talk the same way.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like – it's just my language. And it's like he throws the camera in just this like perfect place. And I look at it and go – it's perfect it's great it's better than what i imagined and i think that um you know i've just learned i've trained my fingers with the tabs and the colons and the uh, underlines and this and that I, i tend to write very detailed scripts because i really want to paint the picture for the artist in the way that i'm able to and then they can translate it however they want i know other writers you know they do the marvel method or they do like they totally trust the artists and they're like Galactus fucking blows them away and looks awesome. You know what I mean? It's like, and that works because you're working with somebody like, you know, um, you know, Horry Fornes or something, right. Where it's like Batman, drops him with the grappling hook and pulls him back up and drops him and picks him back up like i just got this stranger thing and uh, not stranger things the this uh strange adventures director's cut of the first issue mm-hmm. and i'm always fascinated by that because i I'm, I'm amazed by tom king's scripts and how lean they are and how much trust
0: actually he Nick. was specifically the one that i was thinking of when you said that because i know that yeah. he'll write you know big fight that looks cool and then you know mitch or jorge will have to you know, turn that into a thing. And a lot yeah, of artists appreciate right? that. And and like, some don't. Don, Donny Cates, Donny Cates,
1: you know, will do the same thing where it's like Donny Cates is doing like these insane moves that affect the entire Marvel universe irreparably. And it's like two sentences where it's like, you know, null kills everything with two legs. <laughs> You're just like, Oh, sh- sh- okay. Let's draw it. You know, it's kind of like, it's the joke. This is a lame joke. I get, Oh shit. I said lame. I hate that word. Trying to get that word out of my, my language, but the more you think uh, about
0: it, the more it's not going away.
1: I know. Um, but it, you know, the, the eighth of a page in a screenplay that says, you know, from gone with the wind that says Atlanta burns. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're like, well, I, I guess we're, I guess we're shooting that, you know, like, like, but my scripts, I mean, they go, they go pretty deep. Like, you know, I just pulled one up where it's like, you know, the farthest reaches of space, this should look nothing like an ordinary sky nor anything captured with an earthbound telescope, an immense and heavy cloak of blackness, dots of burning stars, sure, but also swells of vivid celestial gas, stretching parsecs, the warping of light around exotic comets, whose trajectories are altering the laws of physics as we know them, and it all should suggest complete silence. <laughs> so, like... Artists either love it or they hate it, right? Like, and they—they're always kind enough to not tell me. But it's the only way I know how to write because I, as a screenwriter, I have to convey the entire thing. Do you think you know?
0: that, that specificity comes from? I mean, is that the way you've always written, or if, to me, it seems like if you're showrunning a TV show, for example, where there's so many different pieces and places that you have to stay in complete control of them—that's the sort of, that the sort of more flowy collaboration of comic books. You know, it's sort of a different thing, or, or is this just sort of how your your writing style works?
1: I think I, I think what happens is in, in screenwriting, it, it's in, in comic books, the way I the way I approach it is I'm I'm really trying to paint the scene in the first sequences. And so that once once we're in, then I can start to kind of shorthand it, not all the way, you know. Um, that makes sense. But just make it an interesting read. I'll even go back and do like the kind of interesting read pass on screenplays. But you know, screenplays, screenplays are all about economy.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm. So I
1: with with comic book scripts, there's less of that. It's kind of like I'm gonna drop a forty page <laughs> script on your desk for a twenty page issue for one guy to read. I have to read it. <laughs> you know, it's like. Um, And it's a place for me to really exercise some of that. But I I really do it with the intention of here's what I see because there's no way to photograph this. Like this is what I'm imagining. Go Take it. And and I always have that caveat of the scripts of like, dude, you read something and you're like, what? And just go do something else completely. As long as we can tell the same story, I'm good. Mm -hmm.
0: It sounds like you – I mean it sounds like you were a fairly prolific comic book reader when you were younger. I mean, have you been reading sort of regularly all through or like, did you go yeah, and come I, back?
1: I, I have my original collection of comics here in LA. Um, a lot of them are in my son's room in the cardboard boxes, but I've started to move um, some of the more valuable issues to, to me, you know, there's obviously ones where it's like, well, that aged well, like, you know, like star Wars, dark empire too. It's like, I guess I'll save these, but like I have my first comic book I ever got from my dad we were on we were going to Tyler Texas to go camping and I think it was on the way back we stopped at a little convenience store and he wanted to buy like beef jerky or pumpkin seeds or something and I was looking at the racks and there was a Spider-Man and he said Do you want to get that and I was like yeah and so I bought a newsstand Marvel Tales featuring Spider-Man um he's punching rain in the face and I read it like a zillion times and I still have it and, and so I have it, you know, in a kind of special plastic Mylar thing, but, um, and I've got a couple others like that. I mean, I was, I was actually just talking to a few other people about this. Like I was, I was a newsstand comic book kid where, and and not like New York city, but like grocery stores, you know, like my mom did all the grocery shopping. I was cool. So I'm going to go get you know the Eric Larson Amazing Spider-Man 347, where he's holding Spider-Man's skull. You know what I mean? I still have that. You know, like 7-Eleven getting Night Thrasher number one. You know, like um, getting getting the Cyborg Superman um, cover. You know, out of a, a different 7-Eleven. So like I, that's where I would pick them up. I mean, then I then I started to move to comic book stores. I grew up in Texas, so we would go to Big Bob's Cards and Comics. R.I.P. Um, and I, that's where I had my first pull list.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, and it was, it was bone, it was spawn. It was, it was the clone saga, you know, for better or worse. It was, um, mask trade paperbacks. It was, um, a lot of that stuff that I just gravitated towards. And I was just always a Marvel kid. I just from the beginning. I, I love, there's some DC characters I just love, but I was just always a Marvel kid. So, you know, I had that, there was that in Lone Star comics, but I would go to Lone Star and you know, I remember I was at Lone Star in high school and that's when they relaunched. They started doing Ultimates and, you know, but they also had like Star Wars figures, you know, like like the old ones that you could get, you know, secondhand. And I just I love being in comic book stores. I feel so safe. I feel so happy in them to this day.
0: As you started to sort of think that you wanted to, uh, you know, make films or write screenplays, you know, did you think of comics in those same vein? Or, you know were they part of the same family or did you know that that was like a career you could have doing comics
1: yeah you know what I I was this is maybe embarrassing but like I was completely ignorant as to how comics were made I just enjoyed them and I didn't realize that there was a writer and an artist and a colorist and an inker I, I started to put those things together but I never really I never really understood that like Fabian Nicenza could come in and like write something, and then somebody else like Rob Leefield comes in and draws it. Like that—that that was new to me. And within a few months of discovering that, or really putting the pieces together, I said, "Well, why can't I? Why can't I write comic? That would be interesting." And then that's how this idea came to be that I brought to Karen. Um, but yeah, when I was a kid, I was completely ignorant of it. I, it it's so funny because by that point, I knew. I knew the screenwriter, I knew the director, I knew the editor, I knew the cinematographer, I knew what those parts were, but with comics, it was just this thing I loved, and I just read the stories.
0: Did you know, like, creator names? You are like, oh, John Byrne drew this, this is great, or... or
1: I knew... No, no. Like, that's the thing, like, I... Right. I, and the, what's funny, right, is, like, now I can go back and go, oh, like, oh, man, like, that 80s Bob Layton Iron Man armor is, like, choice, you know, or I knew Jeff Smith, I knew some of the indie people, right, where it was like, this is this guy's book and he's putting it out. Um, you know, but even The Mask is like, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to Arcudi and Mankey. I was like, just reading it. I, and I didn't, I don't know why. And I, I just never, um, I never put it together. But now, I mean, yeah, I've got thousands of opinions on all those. All those. I, I
0: love the thing where you go back and you apply the knowledge that maybe you have now about the craft. To right. Stuff when you read as a kid, and and the, then the the stuff that really you know stands out, you you realize why, and it's kind of it's kind of cool, like wow, I, I really like this, I didn't know why, but now I see this is the same kind of thing I like now, or 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 even vice versa, which is a little right. little bad. Like, oh, these were terrible, but you know, but yeah. it works both ways. I had the
1: I had the pleasure of meeting Mark DeMattis, Jam mm-hmm. Um We got to have dinner because he's good friends with Karen, so like I got invited. And he was a big *Halt and Catch Fire* fan, which was awesome for me. Um, but then, I mean, I'm, you're sitting with Jam D'Amatis, and it's like I'm immediately flashing back to I briefly had that subscription service where like Marvel would mail order you books, mm-hmm. and I got I got *Spectacular* two hundred that way. And like seeing Mark in person, it was like all I could see was that foil cover. And every time I p- pick up the foil cover now, I go. Man, that dude wrote this like, and it's it's indelibly in my mind forever. Um, I don't know that kind of thing is really cool. Like Ron, um, Ron Mars, uh, I follow on Twitter, and he and I joke around now. But like, Ron Mars wrote one of my favorite issues of Silver Surfer ever, and it, it's one of the ones I have saved in my box. And I, you know, I've taken I took a picture of it and sent it to him. I was like. This is one of my favorite comics ever, and he had like forgotten he wrote it.
0: I'm friends with, with him. There. Cool, you know, and he's like a super cool guy about the things that he's done. That you know, like every once in a while, he was like, "Tell me, tell me a story." Of, uh, oh, I can't even remember what's the, the, the name of the, the experimental comic publisher they all did. Starts with a C. Doesn't matter. Uh, they yeah. all moved to Florida and lived on a little ranch and did stuff. Like he had stories about those, or he'll, you know, t- tell stories about the the people who hated Kyle Rayner. You know, the the Heat people. <laughs> uh, he yeah, uh, he, uh, he's the best. He's good at those kinds of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's great, and it's great to interact with these guys online. And then like even newer guys like Dan Slot, new to me, right? Where like Dan will go because I took over Iron Man from Dan, and he's been incredibly supportive behind the scenes. And then like. People go after like people go after me for Iron Man and like Dan'll come in to my DMs and be like, fuck him, you know, and like and then like people go after Dan for, for an episode of six sixteen and I'm able to come back to him and be like, a wise man once told me, fuck him. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know, I just I love I love the comic book family. Mm-hmm. Rarely do I come across somebody who I'm like, no, I don't really want to deal with that person. Obviously, that happens a lot in Hollywood. Yes. I, I'm fortunate enough to work with lots of people I really respect and enjoy, and I would even call friends. But the 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 comic community is so is so tight knit, and I think it's because they're they're keeping they're protecting the borders of their industry, which is which are always threatened by other mediums and uh, you know. One of the things that I
0: group. Well, I think it's really interesting about comic book people, and uh, I, I worked in the very low end of Hollywood uh, for a little while in the early 2000s, because I have a degree in television that I don't use anymore. But either way, you know, and there's smart, creative people, and they're there, but then there's lots of other people. When I started beating comic book professionals, I was like, oh, these are my favorite people I've ever met, because mm-hmm. they're really smart and creative, but in a certain way, the stakes aren't that high. They could make more money doing almost anything else. But they're so the, doing
1: it. Because they love it, right, right? So the
0: people who are working in comic books are doing it because they love comic books, and so that has all sorts of great things about it. But no, you're 100 percent right. Like comic book professionals are, are like my favorite people.
1: There's a it, there's a sincerity in the industry that yeah. sometimes is lacking in these other more money making industries. And I mean, like you know, sitting down and talking to like Annie Nascetti about <laughs> stuff, and like she's like oh, you got to try this bar in Tribeca where there's an entrance on this street and an entrance on this street and like, you know, going there by myself and just checking it out. I don't I don't know. It's just, it's it's that kind of thing. And, and even with fans, I mean, there's two, I mean, there's fans online, which are different. Yes. But there's a, there's, when you go to a convention, I love going to the convention and sitting at the table because people come up and they go, this, I thought this was awesome. Like I had someone come up to me and talk about Halt and Catch Fire even. She just came to talk about Halt and Catch Fire and she talked about how it, it helped her transition, you know, in, in terms of her gender. And then it was this amazing half hour conversation and that I, I've never, and again, like, it's not, it's not like, look what I did. It's like, Wow! Like I made this story that I thought people would like, and it and it affected them in all these different ways. And same thing with *She Could Fly*. Same thing with, you know, even *Iron Man*. You know, like uh, people come up and they it, there's a there's a shared sincere love of the thing, mm-hmm. so it, that that makes the bond stronger immediately. Where it's not someone trying to get something out of someone else. It's not a bunch of hot air about how we loved your script, we're excited to see what you write next, you know, have you ever considered this, or here's an article about Bitcoin, are you interested in adapting? It's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's like, no, you know, like, um, it's just the thing.
0: So you do this first creator-owned series. Um, and, and then, you know, the next thing is you're, you're doing work at Marvel. How do you go from one to the other? Were you, were you like, okay, now I want to go work at Marvel or did somebody, somebody hunt you down?
1: No, you know, it was, it was interesting. I, you know, Karen and I had such a great time on our book and, you know, we did a sequel called The Lost Pilot, which is a little darker. Um, and I, I, I learned a lot on She Could Fly. I learned about my tendencies to cram in a lot of plot or have Mm -hmm. scope creep on stuff you know, and, and, um, then we did another book. We were like, that was fun. Let's do another one. So we did our book, everything about the, you know, kind of evil, ominous shopping, shopping store, department store that ends up in a small town in 1980. And, um, you know, just like little indie quirky idiosyncratic stuff. And I, I guess I must have asked her at some point, like, Hey, you know, if you ever know anybody at Marvel, like, I do think about it sometimes, how it would be cool. And she introduced me to Will Moss. And it was like, hey, and then like months went by, and which was fine. And then one day out of the blue, Will Moss wrote me. Um, I was at work on our writer's room for a show that didn't go. And he was like, hey, we're doing this thing where, you know, um, War of the Realms is going on. But there are a lot of heroes that we're not featuring. And we're thinking about doing this kind of anthology ancillary series called War Scrolls where we're just doing 10-page stories of what's going on with the other heroes and villains in the Marvel Universe while this crazy invasion is happening. He's like, would you be interested in writing one? And I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, I said yes before I even knew what the character was. And he's like, I got to check on the character. So I waited for three days or so. And he came back, and he said it was Doctor Doom. And I was like, "Oh wow!" yes. And I, I was like, let's. And I, I mean, I went hard. I was like, I'm going to read... Everything. I'm going to read the Kirby, the Lee. I'm going to go all the way back. I'm going to read the Brubaker. I'm going to I'm going to read every single thing just to prepare for this 10 page story. <laughs> and, and I I was happy with it. I, I you know, it's called A Rose for Victor. It's even got, you know, a, a, a couple panels that are an homage to, um, you know, Mignola's uh, work in in um, Triumph and Torment. And it's told from the perspective of a Latvian soldier, you know, watching Doom. So it's a little like Hitler's bunker slash people who see this guy as a god. And so I got to do that. I was floored. Who drew that? uh, Sean Tormey. Okay. uh, Out of Ireland. Amazing guy. He's gone on to do some really great stuff all over the place. Um, I loved his Doom armor. But then Tom Brevoort came to me a few months later and said you want to pitch on a on a full doom series we're thinking about doing a doom series kind of in the vein of the vader series you know we think that he's got legs enough to do something like that and i said yes and i killed myself putting that pitch together and i think like when i usually when i usually give pitch documents to tom <laughs> they're like kitchen sink documents you know what i mean they're just like and then this could happen and then this and and tom i think tom reads the enthusiasm and goes I trust this guy to kind of distill this down, and 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 I do, and I, I mean, I'm able to boil it down, and I'm I, I've learned a lot about what will fit in one comic issue versus, you know, and like what's a thirty pager, what's a twenty pager, what's a forty, you know, it's a straight what's a straight graphic novel which I'm doing for the first time, you know, like what's an eighty-eight page story look like, and um, you I mean, it's know, one of
0: those things that people who don't necessarily come up in comics struggle with. And I think it was one of the things that, that stood out um, as I've, you know, as I've been reading your work for a while is like, Oh, this is, this reads like a comic book. There's not too much dialogue in each panel. There's not, you know, whichever the pacing is, you know, correct for a comic book. And that's, that's very adaptable because a lot of people can't do that. Some, some well, say, yeah. can. The
1: the dialogue um, is funny, right? Cause I, 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 I love to write dialogue in, in screenplays and, you know, you have to be so economical in comic books and, and thank heavens for the dialogue passes where it's like, did you want to revise the script before Joe gets in there and does the bubbles? And it's like, yes, because you look at me how much space is left. And I almost feel like people like Salva or Kafu are like giving me little hints, like maybe shorten that line. And so I can go in there and and convey the same thing and and, and distill it down even more. I, I just looked at the lettering for Iron Man issue six, and I, I was really proud of it because there are several pages where there's just nothing. That's the best. Yeah, or like, you know, and then, you know, the just a single VO box with one word, and I'm like, I was like, yes. Oh, yeah, you're you know? in
0: it. That's that's totally the yeah, right the way Yeah, J-
1: like, J- and then Joe is just... He's dropping the boxes in the bubbles like just in the right place and like kind of burying the sound effects in the background where you're like, This is this is this is weighty. Like just, like that's when you see a letter's work when you're like, Man, that's the exact right place to put that.
0: Joe it's Caramanias awesome. on that.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I've worked with other great letters too, like Steve Wands and stuff, and, and you know, they lay it in and and it and it and it helps bring the story to life. And and sometimes, you know, you look at a bubble and you go, that's way too much. I just blocked out a bunch of art. Like, let's pull it back. He's i going to love you. Cause he's plus.
0: getting his page rate. Right. There's less stuff on there. It's just about mm-hmm. keeping everybody on your side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so actually you kind of ended up with Dr. Doom a little bit by chance, you know, so, did, you know, as you were sort of reading everything that was ever, you know, div- you know, div- written about him and doing all those yeah. stories yeah. and stuff. So when they came to you with a larger series, did you have an idea about it pretty quickly?
1: um for doom i mean i I went immediately for doom doom is great because he can be arch he can be completely not self-aware he can be funny for that reason he's he's not full he's not a psychopath right he's not Cletus Cassidy. right i mean that's an interesting villain too right that's like the terminator but like doom's not going to commit a genocide right like that's just not I don't feel like that's in the character's mm-hmm. deck of cards. He has a big one, but like he can do something that is truly awful, like send his first love to hell in order to have more powers and sorcery. But he has done some heroic things in the past. And so he becomes this this character. And so I, I had this idea of of him beginning to be plagued by these visions of a much better life that could be his possible future where he has a family and he's happy and he's not conquered the world, but unified it mm-hmm. and like how much that would mess with him. And then at the same time, you know, I wanted to do some geopolitical stuff because he's a, he's a, he's a, the leader of a nation. So I really wanted to get in there and do some like Baltic geopolitics. <laughs> you know, and like, like everyone does. <laughs> yeah you know when I, I got into comics to do Baltic geopolitics I mean like, that's really what it boils down to but no like it's what I love is like you look at Marvel and you go through the maps you go through the handbook which is like on my desk right now and it's like oh Latveria has a, a country to the immediate south called Simkaria. oh silver sables from there and then you know stories kind of form out of these different things but I, I wanted my first thing was I wanted to strip doom of everything because he had the throne he had the Castle. he had the control he had everything he had everything to support his ego I know ego gets thrown around a lot in comic books but like his megalomania was like airtight and so to strip him of all of that like I think the first idea I think the first image that came to my head when it when it when I was pitching on the doom story was doom in an old mask that was kind of rusted and he's in a green hoodie, as opposed to a cape and cowl. Like, he's in a green hoodie with his hands in his pockets. How do I get him there? And and it really was like, let's take everything from this guy. Have him work his way back. And by the time he's back, he's reconsidering so much in his life. And yet he's falling prey to the same flaws. You know, like, I don't want to give anything away in the book. But, like, he makes some major decisions but then he's approaching them in the same way he would approach some villainous plot. And and it, it's the same thing. Like Reed's going to get under his skin. You know, like maybe he can bond with Kang for a little bit, but they're both like selfish assholes. You know, like it, it, people can change and, and people don't change. You know, I think that's something I've arrived at recently in my life, which is like like I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to change my parents right now. You know, they're in their late 60s. It's like no, come on. I remember, you know, 10 years ago being like, you know, dad, you know, what if you did this for mom or mom, you know, what if you just looked at it this way? And I'm not giving up on them, but I'm like, they're not changing. You know, like it's, I'm not going to get my dad a Fitbit. Like we're, we're there, like we're there. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to enjoy him for who he is and vice versa. So I don't know, like for me, for me, Doom was like that in terms of Man, let's watch him go through some radical change, but still be Victor Von Doom.
0: Did you, was the idea to pick up at all from, I, I want to say before you doing Doom was Bendis with him and Iron Man, where he was, you know, trying to turn over a new leaf. And, and it felt like when you get to your series, hmm. he was a, a little more evil, you know, than he was in that. But, but he's still having this crisis of consciousness to a certain extent. Were yeah. you moving off that or was that just semi-related?
1: Invincible Iron Man is an incredible story. And what I think what I think Invincible Iron Man is, is like, to me, that's not Doom becoming Iron Man. That's Iron Man becoming Doom. <laughs> it's, I feel like Victor just brings Doom into the concept of Iron Man, which is great. But I, I, I wanted to start my story with him parked a little bit on the sidelines in terms of world events yeah. and to see how that would rankle him. And how he would have all these opinions about these major things going on that maybe he's mad that he was left out of the planning of. Or maybe he's right. You know what I mean? And and I wanted to see him. <laughs> it's like how it's like how they like when they when all the all the like kind of left leaning pundits on CNN interview Rick Santorum. And you're like, God, like poor. I mean, as much as I can. Poor Rick Santorum. He's got to sit there. And like, give the sound bites, and everyone just beats the shit out of him. And like, I enjoy it, you know. But Doom, Doom being an, like a pundit, was fun to me, where I was like, Ah, he was left out of the major event, and he's a pundit. And he's got a strong opinion. He doesn't like Reed. He doesn't like Tony. It's doomed to fail because he wasn't involved. And then you know, things go to hell in a handbasket. And you know, by the end of the series, it's like maybe he's the only guy who can. Stop the stop the catastrophe from happening. And you know, it's almost like he's getting so much of what he wanted. he's gonna mess it up because he, he, he doom trips over his own metal boots a lot.
0: so this this, I guess leads me to, and I will say I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the series. when when Kang showed up at the beginning and he had his feet on the desk, I was like, that's just fantastic. And then <laughs> the, and I think it was the last issue that came out. Uh, uh, there's, I don't say a three page sequence where reed calls doom yes and it is so fraught with subtext and, and <laughs> awkwardness and just and i just it, it was i mean it was honestly it was a beautiful three pages that had to do with two personalities who you know can't get out of their own way And yeah. in that instance and i think I, I noticed this in tony stark i noticed this in joe mcmillan <laughs> you're, you're you're you have a lot of characters who have who are brilliant have massive egos and can't get out of their own damn way Oh yeah, that, I mean, like, yeah. do, are you you're aware that that's a theme? I oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Where it's like they make a decision and then they can't help but be themselves, mm-hmm. and that's going to happen to Doom, you know, as things conclude, you know, and 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 that scene with Reed. The way I like to write, <laughs> the way I like to write Reed, and it's probably because I came into Marvel on Team Doom, right? Like, I got to do I got to do Fantastic Four road trip, but even in that one, like Reed. Oh yeah, Reed is like. But I want to get this meteor dust. <laughs> like,
0: no, it, it, like the the last uh, bit at the end. We just talked about this last week, so I remember it because I don't remember anything else more than two weeks ago. You know, there's you know the last bit where he's just like, let's just ch- check one more time. It's like, oh, it, that's so annoying, but so correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. He can out yeah. of his own way, and then you you read the scene with him and Doom, and it's like, is Reed just really good at psych warfare? Is Reed just perfect at passive aggression? Or is this all in Doom's head because he's so insecure? I mean, I think that that's, that's exactly at the crux of these characters. I mean, Joe McMillan was always a, <laughs> an interesting person where what we liked about Joe was, you know, we had a backstory for him going into season one and it was fine. But what's great was then his backstory became season one and he was constantly trying to earn his way back from season one. And no one would trust him, like, no matter what. He's like, I'm a different guy now. And everyone would be like, yeah, fuck you. Like, there's no way, you know. And, and Tony is doing the same thing. I was actually just um, doing an interview about this where Tony is like, well, my conscience was in a virtual space. I've got a brand new body. So I'm, I'm going to kind of use this as a second a second chance. And, you know, I'm going to maybe try to be a little bit more humble, keep my head down, just be a hero. But, like, no one else is thinking about him that way. He still looks like Tony Stark. He's still kind of out there. And so people are kind of still throwing it back in his face, you know, like AI rights and the machine wars and all this stuff. And that's only the latest thing he's done that's, like, really messed up stuff. So, you know, it's it's funny to me. I have this, too, where it's like, I'm going to go do this really nice thing for this person. And if they're anything less than extremely grateful— I get really pissed off <laughs> you know what I mean? where I'm just like, well, fuck you then. And I think like, that's where we're pushing Tony towards, um, in the book, which is, and you know, we have a lot of fans who are like, why would they be me- so mean to Tony? And it's like, well, because it's building somewhere because Tony's going to fall back to his lesser demons and, and, and for a while. And, and it might even get worse. Um, be- and I think that the, 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 original sin there in terms of what Tony's trying to do, be humble, in quotes. Mm -hmm. It's what Patsy Walker Hellcat has been calling him on, you know, from the very first panel she's in, which is, okay, but like, is this really your square one? Like, are you really, are you really, like, trying to do the humble thing? Or is this like, you got a different car and a different apartment, and you know, is it it just kind of the same, but with different clothes on? And I, I think it is that. But the the arc is going to be, what does it take to truly take Tony down to his humanity? And I don't mean destroy him. I don't mean, like, you know, coldly pull apart a beloved 60-year-old character. I mean, like, take a guy like that and, like, get him to a point where he feels he's lost agency and he has to just kind of give himself over. You know, like, it's a, it's almost a Buddhist adage, right? It's just, he's got to just let the stream go. Like, he, you know, he's got to let go of the joystick. He's got to just float down the river. What does it take for Tony to do that? I think it takes a lot for a guy like Tony Stark to do that, because he's Tony Stark. He thinks he's right all the time, you know? And most of the time he is. So the amount of validation there <laughs> is huge,
0: you know? Do you, like when you're conceiving of these stories and you start thinking about these characters, are these kind of concepts that come first or are there sort of story beats and then this is the theme that you find in them? Because I guess what I'm kind of getting at too is kind of, You know, it's one thing to sort of talk about these characters in an overarching way, but a lot of the way that people experience comic books is that, you know, these guys fight this and there's an explosion and there's something or other. And while the stuff you're talking about goes on in the background and most of the best comics have that in mind, it's not Mm -hmm. always the foremost thing. I I had a question in there somewhere.
1: Yeah, no, I get you. I I think it's kind of coming to me in, in different pieces. It's like, on one hand, I'm looking at Tony Stark and I'm going, okay. Okay, here we got like a white billionaire playboy. How, how do we feel about those types of dudes right now? Well, maybe not that great, right? There's a, there's a lot of ambivalence around that kind of person. And I think Tony is smart enough to be aware of that, to maybe try to change that public image. You know, then I'm thinking about that Bob Layton armor, you know, the, 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 the poster of when I walk into the comic book store and be like, you know, I wasn't a huge Iron Man reader, but like you see that Bob Layton armor and you're like, that is that is an icon. That is something that transcends. And and, you know, then then I get the privilege of starting to work with Alex Ross and then Kafu. And it's like, what do I love about this armor? What what helps me? And, and I, you know, I, I've read, you know, I, I follow enough comic book artists and stuff online where. I think the common answer is who's your, who's your least favorite character to draw. And the answer a lot of the times is iron man. Um, because he has an expressionless face and you can't see his eyes. And back in the day, the armor would actually, that his facial armor would actually reflect expressions. Like I, I didn't want to go that far with I didn't it. See I mean, his eyes through the slits. To, to be to be honest, I kind of did, yeah. <laughs> but, but like Marvel was like, "Yeah, But my big thing, my my big contribution, because the rest of the suit is Alex, and it's like amazing. It's a throwback. Was I want to see his eyes? I want to see his eyes through the helmet because it is, it is humanizing it's the most important thing in film and TV is if you're hiding the eyes, you're doing it on purpose. If you're showing the eyes, it's, it's telling you something, you know, you, you drop the, you drop the balloon light and you put the single white pin in one eye of a character and it, and it can just give you a whole story. And so if we can see Tony's eyes, that's, that's it. We've got it. We've got, we've got a dude. We've got, the man in the iron man, you know, and like that, that to me was, was really important. So, you know, it was, it was kind of the social context. It was the armor. And then I always, it's funny. I think of, you know, who's the big bad, why, you know, and and then there's this kind of wonderful, I'm not a huge wrestling fan, but there is a wrestling component to comics. Sure. There's the, there's the heel turn. There's the surprise visit by Unicorn. There's you know oh, it's a tag team match between you know Blizzard and Controller and 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 Unicorn and and here comes you know Korvac and and now now look at Korvac after after this battle and like all of this stuff and. For me, at least, I want to I want to see a match, you know, and I, I not not all the time, and I, I think that Tom King did this really well with Batman, where it wasn't all the time, but like, and sometimes I get knocked for it too, where it's like, well, do we really need the? He tears apart a jet in the middle of the air, and it's like, well, yeah, but <laughs> you want to see? It's a superhero book, so like, I I wanna I wanna I wanna try to get a match in there, what? But but do a twist on it where it's like. He's fighting Absorbing Man and they don't know why because they're both prisoners of Arcade or, you know, Cardiac is angry at the healthcare system. <laughs> you know, like, like those types of things that at once feel classic, but then have like a new bent on them.
0: So uh, let me go back actually uh, a little to the to the more beginning. Now, it is my understanding... Because I uh, am reading a little before I talk to you to f- understand things. You were working in was it like marketing or social media when you when you sold *Halt* and *Catch Fire* yeah. as a as a series? Like like so, how do you go from one to you know one to the other? No, you had your, your writing partner and and you know.
1: Well, it was movies, a secur- but, circuitous route where, you know, you know, you graduate with a television degree or uh-huh. a screenwriting degree, and you go well. Uh, I guess I'll become an assistant. I was an assistant for six months. I got paid under the table. My boss was a horrible human being. I I imagined the murder-suicide every day where I would run at him from the door of his office and tackle him through the glass window behind him, and we would fall the six stories and smash through the roof of his shitty BMW. (laughs) I just thought that would be incredible. But, like...
0: Wait, wait, no, you don't have to tell me, I don't care about who it is, but like, was this a producer who was working? Was it somebody who had, Eric, because what I'm comparing to this is, I had an interview once, I was a PA for a while, and I worked on shitty shows or whatever, I had an interview once and it was in this like little bungalow somewhere on the Universal lot, and it was the guy who had created the Equalizer, and this was a long (laughs) time after that was off the air, and it was this (laughs) dank little horrible room and they were telling me all this stuff and I just thought, I don't want to be here. So did you take one of those jobs?
1: It was it was the first job I could find. You know, it was yeah. on a job board and it was, you know, I went in, I got an interview, and he said, you know, I'll pay you, I'll pay you five hundred dollars under the table a week. Um, you know, and he would really he would literally count out the bills. He was a manager, producer in a way that he had one like blue chip client, a guy that had followed him from Endeavour. You know, in his heyday, this, you know, he was a big spec sale guy in the 80s and 90s when that was a thing. And he had this one guy who was the most, uh, the most expensive non-produced writer in Hollywood at this point. And this was in 2004. And um, he just rode this guy. And like they, there was one project in development, um, you know, that was sold as a sequel to something. And there was all these conversations about who was going to be in it and who was attached to it. And it eventually came out and it was one of the (laughs) I'll try to say this without names. It was one of the biggest comedy bombs ever. And it was very expensive. And it caused the director to leave not just Hollywood, but most of society for a while and then reflect on his life and write a book about it. And if you did a little digging, you could probably figure out at least who the writer was and the director. Um, but you know, then it was then from there it was like I'm tutoring the SAT. Now I'm working at a bike shop. I'm stripping down Schwinn bikes. Um, I'm I'm studying clowning with a 75 year old master clown in a barn in Vermont. I'm Almost joining the circus. I'm,
0: what was your plan? Were you, I'm, were, were you, I mean, was you, you had a sc- your screenwriting degree, you know, were you, was that you wanted to watch, you wanted to write movies, you wanted to direct movies, or, or I wanted like, to write you? and
1: direct something I, I wrote. Okay. You know, and I, I, I haven't done that yet. And maybe it's closer on the horizon these days, but, um, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I, I I would write spec scripts. I started writing spec scripts when I was 16. I'd write one, I'd finish it, and then I'd write another one. And I actually started doing that because the summers were were when my mind would be idle, and it it would be I would go, I would be in danger of having um, some you know serious OCD episodes. So I I remember early one summer, probably before I got a car, and um, buying the screenwriter's bible at Barnes and Noble and and reading it and going okay I can do this like a blueprint uh, you know page 1 and just like writing a screenplay and
0: I still have that yeah, and then it, I think I want to say you're a little bit younger than me so if you graduated in 2004 I graduated in 2000 when you were a kid how did you come like you know the internet kind of a thing like how did you understand you know what, what a screenplay or what was how, like how did you get to that as a a goal cuz I just know when I was 16 I just didn't understand it or know it I wish I'd found that earlier, I guess. I mean,
1: like, I, we had the internet. My dad was a big computer guy. We had America Online. We had all that stuff. But, like, I think for me, um, I, 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 IMDB started. Okay. And it was like, oh, who's this person? And they wrote this, and they wrote this. Like, oh, who's Kevin Jair? Holy shit. He wrote Tombstone and Glory? And he also did a lot of heroin? Like, what's <laughs> <laughs> like? But, like, two masterpiece screenplays where you're like, Fuck Kevin Jair script like,
0: wow! Or honestly, yeah. Tombstone is one of the first films I ever saw. I want to say I was a senior in high school and I just went, that was amazing, and I don't really know why. And I had that that feeling that I had many times after that. But right, movie oh. and, and directed
1: by the guy who did uh, the uh, Cobra and the sequel to Rambo, George P. Cosmatos, whose son Yorgos did Mandy, wow, which is a masterpiece. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, no, no. It you know Yorgos, it. no, Yorgos. No, Lanthimos did. Yorgos Lanthimos did uh, "Killing of a Sacred Deer" and the lobster, right? Mm-hmm. And then Yorgos uh, 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 Cosmatos did "Bambi." Yes. Okay.
0: Anyway, sorry. Um, these Yorgos. And-
1: look at all these Yorgos. Um, yeah, I, 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 IMDb taught me the roles. It was like, oh, screenwriter. Like he writes. A, what's a screenplay? I and mean, you download screenplay and. And, you know, I had a dot matrix printer. So I, I started typing and then I would print off the script on the dot matrix printer. And I had very encouraging parents who would read this bilge, you know, that I had churned out and, and I would just start another one. And it was a way, it was a way to, it started as a way to preoccupy my mind. And, and it worked for, you know, at least a few years, you know, where I was, I was like, well, I'm, I finished this one. Now I have an idea for this one and I'm going to write this one. And now I have an idea for this one and I'm going to write this one. And I mean, I was just, I was always writing a script and that was my like thing. You know, I, I, I played video games at friends' houses, but like when I was home, I was on the computer and I was just writing a script. And I, I, you know, I convinced my, I, I think I did the first few in Microsoft Word with macros, but I don't think I got final draft. I didn't get final draft until I was in college. But like, you know, I just wrote it with like tabs. You know, it was like tab over, you know, character name.
0: And um, I, I mean, if you've got to find a way to cope, that's and that's an incredibly efficient use of your time. I mean, I just think of all the time that I wasted when I was 16. Probably well, yeah, I learned like, how to write. then
1: too. I mean, like I did plenty of that, too. But yeah, I think I think one of the main reasons that I got I've been lucky enough to get to where I am is. Is I just, I never, I never stopped writing, you know, and and I think the slowest my writing ever got was when, you know, I got out of college, I had these odd jobs, I went and made a a feature, I I, I saw Primer, which was shot for $6,000 in Dallas, where I was from, and I was like, shit, why didn't I do that? Why am I working for this guy that I want to tackle through his glass window? why don't we leave and make a movie? And of course we left and made a movie and knew nothing about lenses and, you know, um, you know, shot it in Texas over five weeks. And, you know, uh, Beck Bennett was in it. Who's on SNL now. <laughs> uh, Cause we went to college with him and, you know, Zoe Jarman was in it. Who's now a writer. And we had a fun time and it was a weird movie, but you know, it didn't go anywhere. But from there we had all this equipment started making short films YouTube appeared right around that time in 2004 It was an easier way to share our little short films with people. You know, you get a modicum of views. You start getting paid to do stuff. And then a startup company comes along and says, hey, will you do all of our video content for marketing? And you're like, yeah. And then that startup gets acquired by Disney and now you're doing, you know, video content and Facebook content and Twitter content for Disney and you're a creative director of marketing. So
0: when you were at that point, like at that point, you're, you know, you're doing stuff, you're, you're making a living. Did you feel like you were closer to or farther away from what you wanted to be doing?
1: I was definitely, I was definitely farther away. Like I worked my way up at Disney. I was there for three years and, you know, I got up senior enough in terms of being in the head of the creative department where, and it was still skunk works and fun and, you know, we weren't on the Disney lot so we could, you know, do weird shit, but, um, you know, I had a six-figure job, and it was it was you know comfortable. And um, you know, I had hired my writing partner. He had just come out of magazines because Condé Nast had collapsed on the West Coast, and he was doing the Facebook programming, and I was doing a lot of the high concept video stuff for Pixar and the parks, um, along with my team. And I, you know, I got engaged, and was like, "All right, I'm all right. I'm I guess I'm." I guess I'm doing this, and and that's when my writing really slowed down, almost ground to a halt. I was like, um, I guess I'm doing this, and and then, wow, well, August of 2010, my this my partner said, let's get a beer downtown. I'm in your area, so we did. Started talking about writing. He had done the UCLA program. I had done USC. He was really into TV pilots. I'd always been a feature guy. He sent me the Breaking Bad pilot. I read it and was like this is awesome. And also like, maybe we could do this. Like maybe we could write one of these and we did. And then we wrote a list out of all the people to send it to. And we got a bite from a manager who had also been at Condé Nast uh, before. uh, And now just come on to 360. He had a junior agent who had just been promoted from assistant. She was really hungry to get into the business. And they said, write something else, and, and then we'll have two samples. We'll try to staff you. And we wrote hog and Catch Fire. And, and you know, enough people were interested in it, meaning Showtime, HBO, and AMC. That's all there was back then. And this is still, this is only 2011. <laughs> and AMC was like, we really like this. And I still remember the email coming through from our agent at the time, who barely knew our names. And he was like, I think we can sell this to them. And, and you know. That's that's where it started.
0: Yeah. Did you expect any of that to happen?
1: No, I I was sitting I was sitting in Coles, downtown. I was living downtown at the time. Coles, one of the places that claims to have invented the the French dip sandwich.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's was soggy, and my my I part. don't get it. But whatever. <laughs> well, I like Philippe's better. That's maybe. that's the one I think that everyone was. You got to try it, and I was like, I don't get it. It's soggy bread. It's like, it tastes love- good, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. Uh, but we're sitting at Coles, and we said, "Okay, are we, we're gonna. I have this idea. Should we write it as a pilot? We can write it as a pilot together. We can act, We can access each other's contacts. What do we ideally want out of a partnership?" And we said to each other, "Ideally, in five to ten years, we could be running our own show." And as insane, twisted fate. Would have it, that was the first thing that ended up happening to us. The first writer's room we walked into was our own. That's crazy. We had a showrunner partner, John Lisko, who had come off of Southland, um, you know, the district, came out of the John Wells School, first job was on NYPD Blue. A lot of those relationships don't go well between showrunners and creators. And John was such an incredible mentor so transparent and he was all about making the best version of what Chris and I had envisioned and uh, we learned everything from him like he ran the show for two seasons we took over for the last two we still run the John Lisko playbook I mean like that guy we were blessed with that guy and we were we were blessed with the opportunity and then we were blessed with the right showrunner and then we 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 <laughs> we threw darts at a cast and we got like Mackenzie Davis and Lee Pace and Scoot McNary and like Carrie Bechet and, you know, it was like, and, and Toby Huss, we got like an incredible ensemble. And we, we wrote a first season. We probably didn't find what the show was until end of episode five, beginning of six. And the network took another chance on us. And we kind of went, here's what's working. Here's what's not. Let's reshuffle the deck. And you know, that became the show. And I still – I swear to God that if we had pitched the show that Halt and Catch Fire became, there is no way on earth – and I say this with respect for the executives that I still know. There is no way on earth they would have bought that show. No way on earth.
0: I, I think it's – its I, I like the show a lot. I, I, like I'm, I'm a big fan, and I actually had tried to watch it, I think, originally when it first came on, and I didn't quite get it and so I came back later, and then so by the time that the series was still airing, I watched sort of as the, the final ones came out, and it really is one of those things where when it starts to develop what it's into, you know, what it becomes, there's an incredible momentum. I, I, I think that, I tell people that the, the finale is, it's one of the most crushing endings, you know, in a way, because the characters are so strong all the way through, um, and that I don't know. I'm just complimenting you, but uh, like, I I think it worked really well in that way. I guess what I'm kind of wondering is, you know, you came on with, you know, more or less no experience. Like how long is it before you, you know, you felt, Oh, we know what we're doing. Or, you know, like how bad is imposter syndrome at that point?
1: It's huge. I mean, like you're in a writer's room and it's like, okay, here's a guy that wrote on Sopranos and ER. Here's a guy that wrote on Deadwood. Here's a woman who wrote on Mad Men um, and you're going home, going, what What am I doing here?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is stupid. And and then you get to production, and you're like, I don't even know where to stand. What's What's <laughs> happening? You know, like um, you're auditioning actors, and you're like, I I think she's good. Um, you know, and and it was John that kind of brought us through it. And I think, I think when we were given the second chance. And to do season two, that's, we started to write from what we wanted to write and and then it started to just kind of feel natural. And, and then we, you know, as we worked through season two, I had put up enough kind of psychological sandbags to protect me from the process and not taking everything in personally and, you know, emotionally that it, it we, we kind of codified it as a, a job and and a job that we were extremely invested in, but but that happened, and then John peeled off to go do Animal Kingdom, and um, you know we went into three, and it the hilarious thing was that none of the writers were able to come back. Really, so we had to completely rebuild the room on our own, and somehow we built another incredible room, and we were just so lucky. I will say that's one thing I will take credit for is that Chris and I pride ourselves on running a very humane very warm writer's room we don't go late we don't start super early we don't there's no bad ideas there's no one-upsmanship there's no yelling there's no it's just I was
0: gonna say like I don't know you very well and people in Hollywood are uh, uh, you know able to put on a face but you do not have the air of menace that I often associate with (laughs) you know the the ego maniacal cuz you know like i i had i had written specs i had done stuff and i eventually i ultimately decided that like i think i probably have the talent but i don't have the temperament for this thing and a lot of that has to do with my wife worked on on sitcoms in the in the, as a writers assistant in the room and stuff and and you know it's just a haul all the time and i thought i don't think i'm built for that now i kind of wish i'd worked on your show but you know times <laughs> pass what are you going to do the, the
1: the yeah the it's it's the temperament of the show. I mean that's exactly what it is, and it it starts from the top, and it and it and it can it can go down. I mean obviously everybody has their conflicts on a TV show. It's in, it's impossible not to. But I mean even the cast, you know, they lived together for Christ's sake. I mean they, they they would get the scripts, they'd go do a table read down in the kitchen. I mean like that's one of the reasons why halt was so good. I mean everyone was invested. I. You know, and and when you're when you're not an asshole and you realize you're not making blood plasma and saving people's lives, you know, then everybody can kind of chill out. You know, did I did I have tiffs with certain cast members once in a while? Sure. Did we make up? Absolutely. Did I throw a headset once? Of course I did. You know, (laughs) you know, like, did I get was it? Did I ever scream on a phone call? Sure. But like, again, it was. It was the
0: exception to the rule. I think as an executive producer, you have to do that sometimes.
1: At some point, like somebody pushes on the phone. you far enough where you're like, what in the living fuck are we talking about? Like, and like that, that when you do that sparingly, I think it's more effective because people are like, shit, we pissed off Cantwell and Rogers. Like, what did we do wrong? Um, and I, I think that, but, but but most of the time it's like, Try not to take it home with you. Um, you know, the days can be physically damaging. I'm on a show right now and 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 you know, emotionally, you're spent by the end of the day. I am and and you got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You got a lot of people to please. You got a lot of things that you gotta get done by a certain time. We're living in a time of shooting TV during Covid. I mean, it, it's. Um, Are you it, you're
0: on it, Paper Girls now? Inside. Is that right? The-
1: yeah, so we're running Paper Girls with it's Chris and I, and we're running it with Steph Folsom, who sold the original pitch with Brian K. Vaughn. So my comic comics and TV have melded.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it, you know, it's it's three showrunners. It's Steph and Chris and me, and I, I think we've we've found a groove. Um, we've kind of found a, a a language with which to talk to each other, but you know, not every producer is different. Um, not every studio is different, not every network. It, um, there are lots of similarities. Um, there are a lot of decisions made out of fear. I'm not saying that as for paper girls. I'm saying that as the TV industry that happened on Hall, right? Which is just like, there's fear here. There's a healthy amount of fear here. If you know, you're over someone's job or how something's going to tank or it's going to be the wrong move and, and it's going to be their ass. And, and the truth is, it's going to be my ass as the showrunner, but like, it's hard to, it's hard to, you're constantly auditioning, you're constantly put on the, on the spotlight to extemporaneously talk about the vision and why this actor or why this director or why this move in the story will really bring to life and, and um, um, enrich the story and themes with which you're being told and how it's the only thing you can do. And you can sit there and talk for 10, 15 minutes. And you know, the worst is when the person on the other end of the line has already made up their mind and they just kind of made you do the dance for no reason. And and that's the times where I get really pissed off.
0: <laughs> so uh, are you in production or are you in pre-production now?
1: We're in soft prep. Okay. So that means that, you know, we're not on the ground yet we will be in the new year and then, and then we will start shooting in the spring. Um, You know, there's still a lot left to do as there always is, but um, the show will get made.
0: Yeah.
1: Color high water. And I, you know, our COVID protocols are really good. One of our stages is being turned into the, like the full triage area with the testing and the lab. We are building a lab around the corner and the epidemiologists we have on set and like all the rules and safety stuff. And, it's a new world man You're yeah not, I, I, we're, I, we're I do have, I have hard
0: time imagining it but I also I, I also have it's completely reasonable to me that everyone's like, well' it's, we got to figure out where to move forward because that that is the one thing about production is that you well, you just keep going somehow or another. And I
1: think that the, the thing that I'm keeping in my mind is because you know you, you listen to a call or you talk to somebody you know you talk to a DP or you talk to a, a production designer who's on another show. And and they go, yeah, man, the numbers are going up and, and we're getting positive cases every week. And you go, Christ, is this worth it? Like, what, why? But, but then you, you got to think about it. And I'm sure a lot of people think of it that way, which is like Hollywood's out there. They got to churn out their evil, sinful shit, no matter what. But the truth is, is that this is 500 people. And these are people who work construction. They're carpenters. Um, they're electricians, they're licensed, unionized electricians. This is where they work and this is how they do their work. And if they don't get that job, they're, they're shit out of luck. And, and there's responsibility to, to all those people. I mean, there is a level of risk that we obviously have to accept at this point in order to continue to work. And I don't mean work like Let's make the best TV show and win a gold statue. I mean, like, let's keep all these people employed, including ourselves, because we need to do that, especially at a time when it's very difficult to to have that job. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to be the person who puts up the drywall in the production department or an art director who's you know sketching something or a storyboarder, it's like Mm -hmm. follow the protocols and cross your fingers and. And hope for the best,
0: mm-hmm. you know. So, I uh, would begin to wrap this up here. I, I guess my other thing that I keep thinking about is you are so you, you're doing a show, you're doing ongoing comic books, you have a family. How are you doing when juggling all this stuff? Because it's a lot. That's a that's a lot of hours.
1: I think I took on one too many comic
0: books. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I do. I I kind of went hard in 2019, um, or sorry, 2020. Because of the nobody pandemic, knows what they is. Know. I was like, "What's going to happen with Paper Girls? Is coming back? What's going on?" You know, Doom stopped, and I started to really reach out and be like, "Man, I really want to just put my tendrils into comic books." And you know, I got I got pitches going at at a couple indie places, books that are happening, you know, all over the place, um, miniseries, ongoing. Um, Iron Man is obviously still a number one priority. Dooms Dooms wrapped up. But you know, Marvel came at me with um, something else, a mini series that that I'm, I've gotta get going here. And and it it's hard to say no to comic books, especially ones that are your ideas. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I can finally tell that story. But I have a special calendar that I break out and know, like, okay, in between I can be writing I can be writing this issue of such and such, I can be breaking this issue of Iron Man. Um, and again, it's a job that requires me and a computer um and an email access it's not it's not a film it's not a tv thing and you know the movie or the uh sorry the, the the tv series it's like an aircraft carrier at a certain point like it's going you know like we'll revise scripts we'll we'll do this and that we'll hire department heads but but it's happening you know and then you've got i've got projects in development where there's a a movie down the road with some people attached that I might actually get to direct. But there's windows of availability. There's all kinds of stuff. You get new ideas. You're like, maybe I should pitch this to somebody just to you know, sell it, get some money, write it. You know, And I don't mean that in a craven way. I mean that in a like, maybe this. So I, I'm, I'm someone who tends to keep a lot of irons in the fire. Otherwise, I get really antsy. Yeah. I, I think if I didn't have comic books, I think I'd be having a hell of a time right now just um, emotionally with um with work and then also
0: with the state of the world i can understand that for sure yeah well thanks so much for talking with me this was this was really fun and uh i'm glad i got to chat get to know you a little bit and uh, yeah
1: likewise this was a lot of fun thanks for thanks for having me on
0: no no problem at all um i am there's nothing like coming out that is there anything coming out you want to Pitch? Promote? Sure.
1: Yeah, what do you got? Yeah, no, I, I would love to, and I don't want some of my smaller stuff to get lost. Obviously, Iron Man number four comes out next Wednesday, uh, which is exciting. Uh, the week after that, we've got the finale of Doom, Doom number ten. The story ends. Then uh, then we get a little coda on the 30th of December, which is Iron Man and Doctor Doom huh. fighting a, 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 a symbiote Santa which is our King in Black tie-in. I'm very, very excited for that. Um, and yeah, my Marvel work will continue. Um, I'll have a little tease of a, of a creator-owned book coming down the road, I think, here in a few weeks. Um, the second volume of my book, Everything, comes out in the spring next year, and and I I would really implore people to, to check that out. The first volume is a lot of fun. It's the department store that is maybe... There's more to it than it seems. It's it's a science fictional story. I think that I Colbert, you know, and it's something I did with Karen too.
0: That says Dark Horse.
1: Yes, this Dark Horse. It's coming. It's coming out as a trade paperback all at once because of the pandemic. Sure. It's called Volume Two: Black Friday. I I think we nailed the ending. I think like we went deep. We went weird, and I think we went poignant and beautiful. I think we said something about consumerism and about. Happiness. My with my with that book, I set out to try to say, you don't have to be happy all the time. <laughs> it's okay to not be happy sometimes. Um, and I, I think I think we got there with that book. Um, and then in the fall, there'll be another series of mine will return and trade, and then I'll get i
0: have a graphic novel out there somewhere. So it'll be awesome. I just I just think you're slacking a little bit.
1: I know, right? Like I like I got to figure out something else to put in there, like. I don't know. it's like get in the Peace Corps, or, yeah. You know, do something. I don't even so know. Just
0: make yourself useful. Come on, man. It's a busy world.
1: Well, you know, I've got I've got an office full of toys, so <laughs> I'm, gonna set up, I'm gonna like one thing I'm gonna preoccupy myself with is I'm setting up my Cordelia doll from Angel
0: mm-hmm.
1: to make sure she's holding her samurai sword correctly. Obviously, so, you know that takes some time.
0: That's good. That that works. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and uh, if we ever have comic shows again, maybe I'll see you around sometime.
1: That would be awesome, Josh. All
0: right. Thank you so much. much, Take care. I want to thank Chris so much for joining me. He's obviously got a lot going on, and his time is probably quite valuable. If you would like to follow him on Twitter, you can find him at twitter.com slash ifyoucantwell, which is a pun. Uh, you can also uh, go to ifanboy.com and you can find uh, this podcast, comment on uh, other interviews I've done. I've done many other interviews uh, and, and there's all sorts of shows and podcasts there uh, that you would probably enjoy if you were unaware of them. And once again, thank you to the patrons uh, for getting us to the goal where you do these shows again. You can go to patreon.com slash ifanboy to do that. And that is all. Thanks so much for listening and take care of yourselves.